Welcome to the Knox Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We hope this resource is a blessing to you. Let's jump in. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Surely that faith cannot save, can it? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Man, I have to say, I heard that anthem being practiced several times Wednesday night and this morning, and it brings me to near tears every time. Um, Just so beautiful to see and witness and hear all generations lifting up that truth that God is worthy. God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our service. So thank you to Anna and Aaron and our choir, choirs, uh, for putting that together so beautifully. Let's pray as we go to God's word together. God, we thank you for your church, the body of believers that you have gathered uh, from every tongue, tribe, and nation under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this church, for Knox, and the ways that you are shaping us and molding us to be uh, your kingdom people here in this place and time. And we pray that you would continue to shape us even today as we come and listen to what you have to say to us through your scripture. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the year 25 AD, there were zero Christians, right? Christians didn't exist yet. There was an eccentric hermit who lived in the Judean wilderness who made some pretty grandiose claims about his cousin, the carpenter. Well, that's all. Skip ahead, 100 years, and all over the Mediterranean world, in every single village, there are small communities of people whose lives have been turned all the way upside down by this carpenter who was executed as a criminal. And they gathered together, worshiping him as if he was divine. How did this happen? Who were these people, these Christians, these people of the way? Well, that is the question that the emperor Hadrian was asking at the time. So Aristides, one of the most prominent philosophers of Athens, went on an investigative search to answer that question, to discover who were these Christians. The most striking thing that he discovered was this remarkable difference between the Christians and their non-Christian neighbors. Just one example, in, in, the everyday, or in the ancient world, it was everyday practice that, that people extended love and loyalty to their friends and family. That was common, but that's where it stopped. But not the Christians. The Christians seemed to love 
their family, their friends, and even strangers as if they were kindred. When somebody came into town and they discovered that that person was also a follower of the way, they were welcomed into, into homes and they were treated like family. If a poor person in their fellowship was sick, they would pray for that person. And if that person passed away, they would pool their resources to make sure that that person had a dignified funeral. Those who had shared with those who didn't have, whether they were related physically or not. And all of this was stunning to Aristides. Their morality was exemplary. Their generosity was inspiring. Their kindness was extraordinary. Not just to the people in their fellowship, but even to their enemies. He observed this. They loved their enemies, their oppressors. They appeased them until they became friends. If there was a widow in the town, everyone else, they would turn their backs on them. But the Christians, they made that widow a part of their fellowship. If there was a child that nobody wanted, they brought that child into their own homes. The orphan had a place in the family of faith. Aristides hadn't seen anything like this in any other people anywhere. It was so inspiring to him that he became a Christian. You can read the report he wrote to Hadrian. It's called Aristides' Apology. It had been lost for many centuries, but in 1878, some monks in Venice found it in a pile of scrolls. So here's a question. What if Aristides came to Naperville on assignment and asked to report, who are these Christians? And what are they all about? What do you think he'd find? Now, please understand, I don't ask this question because I'm concerned that if we don't behave the right way that God might decide to reject us. No. The Bible says that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're not earning God's love in any way, but still, we need to ask the question because I believe that God means to build us up. God means to build us up so that when we go out into the world and when people look at us, they see Jesus. That's what our vision here at Knox is all about, that, that when we as a community go out and live our lives out in the world, in, we, that we do so in such a way that when people look at us, they see Jesus. They see us when we are loving sacrificially, serving generously, and seeking Jesus together to see God's kingdom come in the Naperville area and beyond. So that begs the question, what are, how do we do this? What are some practical ways we can put this vision into practice? That's where our values come in. Knox's core values. This is what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. Knox's kingdom values. Service is hands-on. We cultivate curiosity. Kids grow here. We're together in highs and lows. Lives are changed by Jesus, and we take fun 
seriously. Those are our values. And as you saw from the video moments ago and from what many of us are here to do today, the value we want to focus on today is service is hands-on. And learning from Jesus, we're going to explore two things about service. Why we need it and how we do it. So let's jump right in. First, I want us to learn from Jesus why we are called to hands-on service. And we're going to learn that as we jump into a story from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, just to set a little context before we get to the reading. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus knows he is about to suffer and die. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand all that is about to happen, all that he is about to do for them. So along the way, he stops, and he sits them all down, and he tells them, in a short while, I am going to be arrested, condemned, and killed. And in three days, I will rise again. It's a big deal, right? Jesus tells his disciples this, and you'd think the disciples would have some concern for Jesus, some compassion for Jesus. At the very least, they'd have a few questions for Jesus. But that's not what happens. Immediately after Jesus says, hey, all this terrible stuff is going to happen to me, two of Jesus' disciples do this. And we pick up our reading in Matthew 20, starting at verse 20. It says, then... The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, they're like, Jesus, right, 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 right. You're going to suffer and die cool, but can we get back to us for a second? And they get their mom to go with them to Jesus to make this absolutely absurd request. And it gets worse. Jumping back to the passage, verse 24, Matthew tells us that when the 10, the other 10, heard it, they were angry with the other, with the two brothers. These other 10 disciples, when they overheard what James and John were asking for, they were mad. Not, let's be clear, not because they were outraged at their fellow disciples' bad behavior, but because they were jealous. Because they wanted those seats of power next to Jesus too, and James and John thought to ask for them first. These disciples, they've got a sickness. And I am very sorry to tell you, but this sickness, it is highly contagious. You've got a case of it too, and so do I. Want to know what this sickness is? Let me first start by naming a few symptoms. See if you've got a touch of it. Imagine yourself, you're driving to Chicago, And you get to that spot where 290 and 294 merge together, and no matter what time of day, there is always traffic. So what do you do? Do you 
A, bob and weave between lanes, playing like a live action game of Frogger, competing to see who can get the furthest ahead in the traffic. Or B, do you observe that the car that was once right next to you or even behind you is actually doing the same thing and get outraged because they made it in front of you? So another idea, you get to work, you go to work, say those of us who still work in an office or remember back when you did, and in that office there's a, a staff meeting, there's a daily staff meeting, you get together at 11 a.m. And in the place where the staff meeting is held, imagine there's like two chairs that are really comfortable, three that are like okay, and four that are just like impossible to sit in, you just slide right out, just super uncomfortable, right? So staff meeting starts at 11, you know that there's just those two chairs. How early do you get to staff meeting? And which chair do you choose? The day goes on, you're working really, really hard on a project. It's Friday, and you are almost done with this project. It's 3 p.m., you can see the finish line, it's coming. If you just get those details done, the weekend is calling. And so you're head down, you're working, and in pops one of your coworkers. And they want to talk. Something really hard is going on in their life, and they know that you're a Christian. You know that you're somebody who can listen and, and maybe even pray for them. And so you're sitting there, and you know as soon as you just get those last things entered into the spreadsheet, you get to leave for the weekend, and yet here is this person standing almost literally in your way of getting done. How do you respond? You get home from work, and you find the sink full of dirty dishes. And it is your roommates, your husbands, your wife, your kids, someone else's job to do the dishes. But there they sit. How do you feel? What are you thinking, feeling, after walking through a day like this? Are you liking the version of yourself that you're feeling rise up more or a little less? There's a reality that lies beneath the surface for many of us. We're not aware of it on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, but the truth is we are all sick. The outbreak has occurred and we have all been sick. We have been contaminated with the sickness of self. Self-centeredness, selfishness, self-importance, self-seeking, however you want to label it, we have all got it. You, me, Jesus' own disciples, all of us. And the sickness of self, it is pretty nasty business. It's bad because it is self-defeating, self-perpetuating, and self-degenerating. It's self-defeating. Listen, nobody walks into a day and thinks, you know, I'd really like to be a selfish jerk today. (laughs) I don't think. Now, for the most part, we want to be liked by people. We want to connect with people. But when we are stuck inside ourselves, we can't. People don't like us. People don't want to be around us. I mean, think about it. Who would you rather be around? A selfish person or a giving person? What kind of boss would you rather work for? What kind of roommate would you rather have? What kind of kids do you want to raise? 
The sickness of self is self-defeating because at our deepest heart level, we want to be accepted and loved, but this sickness keeps that from happening. It's self-defeating and it's self-perpetuating. It's more than a habit. It's an addiction. The more we choose to put ourselves at the center, the more we want to stay at the center. We choose ourselves over and over and over again until it's really not a choice anymore. Without even thinking, it's just what we do. It becomes who we are. And it's self-degenerating. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, J.R. Tolkien masterfully portrays what happens to a human soul when over time it sinks into itself. The character Smeagol, who's a typical healthy hobbit, until he gets that ring of power. And over time he descends into darkness. He becomes Gollum deformed in both body and mind as he clings desperately to the one thing that keeps him enslaved. Over time, the sickness of self robs us of the the beauty and the goodness that God implanted in each one of us, leading us to potentially become this sad and lonely, twisted versions of ourselves instead of who God created us to be. pretty grim picture. I don't know about you, but that is not who I want to be. And while I have my days, my moments that are better than others, I know that for the most part, I am pretty sick. I am so very stuck on myself. So what do I do? Well, as luck would have it, Jesus has a solution. Jesus has the antidote. To his very insensitive, sin-sick disciples, Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a remedy for the sickness of self. And this is why we serve. Yes, of course, we serve because of the many needs out there. But we also serve because of the needs in here. We need a cure for the self-defeating, self-perpetuating, self-degenerating sickness of self, and that's what Jesus gives us in the remedy of service. Whoever wishes to be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first must be your slave. So how do we do this? How, practically speaking, do we do what Jesus is calling us to do? How can our service be hands-on, not just when we're going out on mission trips and participating in Knox serves, but every day? Well, I want to offer three suggestions, and they are simplicity, service, and surrender. 
Simplicity is the first one. And in this context, I would define simplicity as the practice of creating space and releasing resources for the sake of someone else. Creating space and releasing resources for the sake of someone else. One of my dearest friends, her name is Laura. And Laura and Casey have three children, ages 8 through 15, all of whom they adopted out of foster care. But years before where they are now, years before they even knew the name of the first child that they adopted, Casey and Laura, they started to set aside money. Money that they would normally have spent on themselves, but they set aside money for their children. Again, years before any children were in their home, they set aside rooms, made sure they had spaces that were going to be ready at the moment's notice when they got the call that a child would need a space to live in. Casey and Laura, they simplified. They created space and they released resources for the sake of someone else. Now listen, I know that some of you think about serving others, you want to serve others, but you look at your calendar, you look at your bank account, and you think, I just don't have enough. I don't have enough time to serve. I don't have enough money to serve. And we all do that thing where we say, ah, someday, someday when I have more time, someday when I have more money. Well, the truth is that someday doesn't get here by itself. It takes an intentional choice, an intentional choice to simplify, to create space, and to release resources for the sake of someone else. So the first step in being set free from the sickness of self is to engage in the practice of simplicity. The next step is actual Service, and there are lots and lots of ways to serve, lots of things that you can do. Look, a little plug here. If you go to our fancy, fancy little new updated website, if you haven't been there yet, go. You can click on a button right up top. It says serve. You scroll down to the bottom of that page, and it has three different headings, church, neighbor, world. And you can click on any one of those headings and find a myriad of opportunities to serve in one of those categories. Now, I want you to know, we put these links on our website and, and we make announcements in worship and we put things out in our emails and, and we do all of that. And sometimes I get the feeling that people kind of think that we're doing that because we're just trying to get someone, anyone, to fill a hole to run a program, right? That we are trying to get you to serve because we need you to serve. And I will tell you, with 100% honesty, that's not why we do it. We are not trying to get you to serve because we need you to serve. Yes, of course, the church is a volunteer-run organization. And yes, the staff are here not to do all the work of ministry, but to equip the saints, that's you all, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And no, we could not run our worship services, our children and youth programs, our Bible studies, our small groups without faithful volunteers. 
And yes, it's true that the reason that the shelves at Loaves and Fishes are full of food, the reason that the men and women at Hesed House get fed, the reason that men and women are benefiting through microfinance loans, through CareLink, all of that is because of volunteers. All of that is true, and that's not why we ask you to do it. We don't ask you to serve because we need it. We ask you to serve because you need it. You need to serve. Serving others does way more for the person who is doing the serving work than it does for the person who is receiving your serving work. Ask any faithful volunteer and they will tell you they get so much more out of it. They would have stories upon stories upon stories of what serving does for them. We have all got a case of this sickness of self. And so we want to give you the chance to serve because we want to see our church, we want to see our world healed. Which leads to the final step in the remedy that Jesus gives. If we want to be cured from the sickness of self, we need to simplify. We would do well to serve. But ultimately, if we want to be fully healed, we have to surrender. We have to surrender. We have to recognize that we don't actually have the power to make ourselves better on our own. You know, there's a lot of people out there who've gotten this idea that, that what God wants most from us is just that we do good, that we be good, that, that God's ultimate desire for us is that we be nice, that we, we take care of everybody, and if we do that well, then God will accept us, right? Like somehow our good behavior is what makes us acceptable to God. And you can try that method. You could jump in this week and do your best to carve out time and set aside resources to benefit others. You could work all day long to do acts of service for the people around you. You could try to do that on your own. But I'm going to tell you right now, ultimately, you're probably going to fail. If by your own strength you're trying to serve the people around you, it's going to get hard and you're going to want to quit, which is why we don't call you to do this by your own strength. To live the life of simplicity and service that Jesus calls us to, he doesn't call us to it on our own. The thing that Jesus calls us to over and over again is to surrender to surrender to his power, to surrender to his love, to surrender to the reality that Jesus came to serve us. Philippians 2 says it all. We're told that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the best way we can serve others is to start from the knowledge that we have been served. The true path to wholly loving others is to accept that we are deeply loved. The very best healing for the sickness of self is to surrender to the one who knows you're sick and loves you anyway and who alone has the power to heal. Amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information on how to get connected, please visit our website at knoxprez.org. That is K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcast, or Spotify.